Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. I'm going to read from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Thomas sees and believes. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithful, faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Terry. Hey, good morning, everybody. Christ is risen. All right. Um, Thomas gets a bad rap. Even if you've never been in the church before, if you've never been around the church, or this isn't like your thing, you've heard the phrase doubting Thomas before, right? And you just know that means somebody who's kind of a wet blanket or who doubts the veracity of whatever you're trying to tell him. And this poor guy, man, he, he gets beat up on. We're going to take a look at this. Um, so, but, but first, I, just, I need to step back to 2008. I don't know where you were in 2008, but in 2008, I was living in Boston. I was extremely sick. Now, you've been around for a while. You know this story, so please just bear with us. You who are new, I'm going to let you in a little bit on my life. So back in 2008, I was extremely sick. I, uh, I was incredibly healthy at the beginning of the year, and then about the middle of the year, I started to lose weight, like, like really drop weight fast. Um, and I had to go to the bathroom all the time. I didn't sleep at all. Um, I was working my butt off. I was working like um, two long shifts at a restaurant every day. And uh, so I thought, man, I'm just working myself sick. I'm just working myself till I'm exhausted. Um, but then there were some other things going on. And eventually I had some friends who at first were like, dude, you're looking good. Go, dude, you're looking a little ill. Like, you, I see your skull. Like, you know. Um, so I just started getting really skinny. And uh, finally, I finally got into a doctor, and it turns out I had diabetes. So I have type 1 diabetes. Uh, I've been dealing with it since 2008. Um, but that was, without a doubt, the absolute lowest point in my life. I was also working at a really high-end seafood restaurant, and the economy collapsed, which meant that, like casual dining places did okay because they got all the business from us, but we lost everybody. Like, nobody came. I, I worked at a high-end seafood restaurant in the financial district of Boston, which meant nobody was coming to see us anymore. Everybody was broke. And so my income was cut by 
um, like down to one-eighth of what it had been. So I'm sick. I have no money. And I'm kind of going crazy because when you live with undiagnosed diabetes, you go a little crazy. High blood sugar will do that. And so I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer. I'm on the outs with my roommate. All of the furniture I had gotten from Rent-A-Center was taken back because I couldn't afford it anymore. So, like, I'm sleeping on an air mattress on my floor that has a leak in it. And so I wake up in the morning on the hard floor. Like, I don't even, I don't even make it through the night, which is okay because I'm getting up every half hour to go to the bathroom. It was, it was really, it was the worst. It was absolutely the worst. I can laugh about it now. But at the time, I thought every single night for a while, I thought, Lord, if you take me tonight, it's okay. It's all right. I'm ready. I'm good. I don't need this. That same summer, early fall, I met Beth. And Beth was wonderful. She didn't know I was like totally into her. Um, but we, we became friends. We became friends through friends. And we would go to these Sunday night dinners at our friend's house, and we got to know each other over the time. And eventually, I plucked up the courage to ask her out. But remember, I'm sick. I got no money. I'm, I get, I've got nothing to offer this girl. She was like an administrator at a university. Like She's like got a master's degree and killing it, and I'm just barely surviving, literally, in every way. And so I'm thinking, there's no, there's just no hope, right? So finally, I work up the courage to ask her out. We go out in December of that year, and we start dating. And because we had a friendship and we had a relationship, she was committed to me. And there was one night in particular, one vivid date. We lived, I lived around the corner from this great Indian place. We both did, just on different sides of the street. And we were going to this Indian restaurant for dinner. And we park her Civic out front, and I, we're about to go in the door, and I'm just weeping. And Beth's like, what is, what's the matter? And I said, Beth, I can't afford this meal. I can't afford anything. And she said, it's okay. It's all right. I've got this one. It's okay. So fast forward months later, we've been dating, and I've been treating my diabetes and getting better and, and trying to make things work and financially things are working out better for me and so I feel like I'm on a better footing and finally it's time to propose and I'm sitting at my friend uh, with my friend Jonathan who we met at, Beth and I met at his house the first time he would be the guy who officiated our wedding I'm sitting there with Jonathan and Jonathan says why do you want to marry Beth now he knows our story right and I'm like why, why would I not like there's nothing better out there for me to look for. Like, she's it. She's amazing. She's wonderful. Have you seen the way that she's taken care of me and helped me and walked with me through all of this? She met me at the absolute lowest point of my life and said, it's okay. I'm with you. And you don't walk away from somebody who will commit to you like that. And so as Jonathan and I are talking, like, I'm, I'm, I'm telling myself this as much as I'm telling Jonathan this, because I need to remind myself all the time of why I love this woman. Not for what she can give me. Not because she paid for that dinner. Not because of the, the stability that she offers that I didn't have. But because of the love that she gives. You see, all that other stuff was just an outflow of her love for me. I knew Beth loved me, I think, before she even knew to say the words. I think. I'm, I'm extremely committal. She, she takes her time. I'm more committal, right? So I think I knew she loved me deeply before she did. And I love my wife. And she gives me so, so much. But I don't love her for what she gives me. 
What she gives me is an extension of her love. I love her because she's her. I love her because she's amazing. I love her because she's an incredible mom. I love her because she's an incredible friend. I love her because she's amazing at her work and she throws herself in and commits to stuff and just gets stuff done. My wife is a boss. Right. You need to know that. And I've, now that I've embarrassed her to the utmost, I want you to know that that kind of commitment, right, that kind of love, that's just the tiniest reflection of the love God has for us and the love that God wants from us. A lot of us walk into the church or we, or we come to God and we imagine that God wants us for what we can do for him. Or that God wants us to want him because of what he can do for us. Some of us walk into the church and we're, we're just after what God can give. And some of us think God is after us just for what we can give and the service we can do. But none of that's true. God wants you because you're you. Because he made you and he loves you and he wants you. No matter what you can give. Because let's be real, when we're talking about the God of the universe, what you can give to him is really nothing at all. But God wants you because you're you. And he wants you to want him because he's him. Jesus wants you to want him just because he's him. And all of those things that he will do for you, all of those things that he has done and will give to you, are extensions of this love but not the reason for it. The love is the reason. And that's the kind of love I think Thomas had. So here we, we come to this place where Thomas gets his bad rap as doubting Thomas. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, Jesus had picked out these people to follow him. Some he had just kind of picked up. Like he's out talking and preaching and teaching and people just start following him and walking behind him. And eventually, Jesus goes, you 12, I want you to be the leaders of my movement. I want you to be the leaders who follow me and who are going to carry this movement on. And one of those is this guy named Thomas. And these 12, they're the ones who are always with Jesus. You know, the rest of the crowd that follows him, they kind of come and go depending on where Jesus is. But these 12, they live with him. They're following him. They're his disciples, which means they're his apprentices. They're learning to live life like Jesus. They're learning to talk like him, to eat like him, to act like him. There's this old saying from the rabbis that said, uh, a disciple should be covered in the dust of their rabbi, which means that they're just meant to form their entire life to what the rabbi does. And these guys are following Jesus as their rabbi. They want to be conformed completely to who Jesus is. They want to be like him in every way. And Thomas is one of these guys. He's been sleeping next to Jesus. He's been eating with him. He's been living life with him 24-7 for like three years. And then Jesus goes to the cross. Now Jesus had been warning his followers, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. I'm going to do some stuff and it's going to make them mad and they're going to arrest me and they're going to kill me and this has to happen. It is for your good that I die, Jesus tells his apostles. And they sort of half believe him. I mean, if you read the, the accounts of these in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, you, you get the impression that they, they, they sort of half believe him. Like they've learned not to doubt Jesus' word, but they also just cannot understand how Jesus dying could be anything good for them. 
Jesus isn't supposed to die. But he does. He goes to the cross. And we, when we see the, the cross happen, when we get the picture of Jesus on the cross, none of his apostles are there except this one kid named John. His apostle John, who was like 12 or 13. I mean, he's this young kid who's there at the cross with Jesus' mom, Mary. But none of the others are around. They've all fled because they're afraid of being arrested themselves, just like Jesus was. Everybody knows that they follow Jesus. Everybody knows that they're his disciples. They think they're going to do the same stuff. And so they, these all, guys all flee. So Thomas is one of them. He flees away. And Jesus is crucified. And that, that happens on a Friday afternoon. On Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. And you can imagine for these apostles of Jesus, for those who have been living with him, walking with him, this is the darkest day of their lives. This is the guy who was supposed to save their life. This is the guy who was supposed to free the Jews from Rome. This is the guy who was everything to them. And on this Saturday, this holy, silent Saturday, Jesus is in the grave. And you've got to think these apostles who, who only half believe Jesus in the first place about his death are kind of going, what's going on now? Like, what's our future? Everything was wrapped up. Some of them go back to fishing. Some of them go back to the trades that they had beforehand. And then Sunday comes. Sunday morning, the sun rises, and Mary, Jesus' mom, and a couple of other women have gone to prepare the body of Jesus, as the Jewish people would do. They go to prepare his body, and, because they couldn't do it when they took him down from the cross. There wasn't time before the sun set to get his body prepared for burial. So now, after the burial, they're having to go back and to prepare his body. Only when they get to the tomb, there's no stone there anymore. See, they'd roll a stone over the tomb to keep people out and to keep the animals out and to keep the body safe. When they get to the tomb, there's no stone there anymore. But there's an angel this angel of light who's there to say, Jesus, he's not here. You've come looking for him, but he's, he's not here. Now, what I want you to do is go back and tell all those men who ran away that Jesus is risen from the dead. And that's what they do. These women run back to the male apostles. They run back to the men and they say, you'll never believe this. Jesus is alive. Jesus rose from the dead. And they do this as all of the apostles are gathered for dinner, only Thomas isn't there. Now, we don't know why Thomas isn't there. Maybe he went back to doing his job. Maybe he was just so distraught and so brokenhearted that he just couldn't be with the other apostles. You know what this is like, right? Some beloved member of your family passes away, and there's that one brother or cousin, or maybe it's you, you just can't spend time with the family right now. you got to get away. You, you got to go process this. You just can't be with everybody right at the moment. You got to take some time. You got to take some space. And I imagine that's Thomas right now. Thomas loves Jesus. Thomas is broken that Jesus has died. And so he's not at dinner with the other apostles. He's stepped away. And he's doing something else out of his brokenheartedness. And so the women come running back to the men, and they're like, hey, Jesus rose. And that evening at dinner, after the women told the men, Jesus himself appears. We're told that the door was locked. These men were gathered for dinner, these disciples and apostles of Jesus. Not just the men, their wives are there too. There are women around. And they're all gathered for dinner, and the door is locked. Now, that's not normal. 
It's not normal in this world to have a locked door when you have a dinner. Dinners are generally public. People can come in. They may not sit down and eat, but they can observe what's going on. But these guys are so afraid of the authorities, they're afraid they're going to be arrested just like Jesus was, that they lock the door. And so they're having dinner, and then boom, Jesus appears. And I don't imagine this is like a Star Trek beam me in kind of thing. Like, I think he's just there. Like, one minute that corner's empty, and the next second, boom, there's Jesus. And you can imagine they're all like, what? Right? Which is why Jesus has to say, shalom. Peace be with you. Hey, don't freak out. It's just me. I told you this would happen. Here I am. And he has a conversation with them, and they have dinner. He eats with them. Only poor Thomas isn't there. So the night ends, and you can imagine they're all, like, over the moon. They're all excited. And one of them's got to go find Thomas. And so they, they break, and then we skip to a week ahead in the text here. A week from then. And they're getting ready for dinner again. Now imagine this week for Thomas. Poor guy, right? He was distraught. He was brokenhearted. His master, his rabbi, has died. The man he thought was the king of Israel has died. He has no hope. All of his hope was wrapped up in Jesus, and now Jesus is gone. So imagine the week Thomas has, because people start coming to him. Hey, Thomas, did you hear? Thomas, you know what? Hey, Thomas, Jesus rose again. Hey, Thomas, dude, no, seriously. And Thomas is like, no, no, I can't, I can't believe you. No, I just, until I see it, I can't believe it. And they're, and they're just pestering him. Thomas, no, seriously, we saw him. Jesus is alive. And Thomas is like, I can't believe it till I see it. And this is where Thomas usually gets that bad rap. But I want to suggest to you that Thomas doesn't believe, not because he's a wet blanket and not because he's particularly skeptical. I want to suggest that Thomas doesn't believe because he loves Jesus so much. He cannot indulge in false hope. False hope would kill him. False hope would take Thomas down. Thomas doesn't doubt because he's skeptical. Thomas doubts because if he puts all his hope in Jesus' resurrection and then it's not true... It will crush him completely. He cannot have false hope. He loves Jesus too much. And as much as I'm certain he wants to believe these people that he has lived with and walked with for three years, as much as I'm sure his heart desperately wants to believe that Jesus is alive, until he sees the proof, he just can't do it. He won't take the false hope. And so a week later, Thomas now, poor guy, has just been beat up all week. I'm sure the other apostles weren't trying to beat him up. But you know, when someone's trying to convince you of something and you're just dead set against it, how stressful that can be, how in knots it can make your heart. And poor Thomas has been hearing all week, hey, Jesus is alive. And he's like, I can't, I just can't go there with you, man. I can't do it right now. So a week later, they're having dinner again. And this time Thomas is there. Thank God this time Thomas is there. So they're having dinner. Exact same setup. Exact same situation. They're all having dinner. The door's locked. Because after all, it's only a week after the crucifixion of Jesus. They could still be hunted by the authorities. So the door's locked. The room's full, packed out with disciples of Jesus. And it's crazy because so many of them are so joyful. So many of them are remembering last week's dinner. Hey, you think he's going to show up again? Hey, you remember, you remember when we were sitting here and boom, and everybody's like, yes, we remember. Yeah, yeah, we were there too. Yeah, Andrew, stop it, man. 
they're having dinner, and Thomas is there in the middle, and he's kind of like, I don't know, man. Like, I, these, I don't, I, I'm beginning to think these people are nuts. And then the same thing, boom, Jesus is here. Right? Empty corner, one second. The next second, boom, Jesus is there. And you've you, you got to see Thomas right now. Like, that doubt is gone. I, I don't think Thomas ever had to actually put his hand in Jesus' nail marks or in the hole in his side. I don't think Thomas needed anything more than, there's Jesus. But Jesus in his grace, Jesus in his kindness to Thomas, Jesus in all of his understanding walks over to Thomas. He comes to the doubter and he says, Thomas, here's my hand. Thomas, here's my side. Let me show you. Let me prove to you. Because Jesus understands Thomas' heart. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't come down on him. I mean, it would have been so easy. It's what most of us would do if we were in that position. If we were in Jesus' position, we'd have been like, Thomas, they've been telling you all week, man. Why did I have to show up to show you this? Thomas, dude, like, you know these people. You love them. You trust them. Why didn't you just believe them? Like, that, I imagine that would be the posture of a lot of us in that room. Like, just annoyance. Like, dude, you knew me, and you know these guys, and I tried to tell you, and they're telling you that what I told you is true. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't need to. That's the action of a weak constitution. That's the action of a weak character. Our characters are weak. That's why we would respond that way. Maybe you wouldn't. Your character is probably stronger than mine. But Jesus, in his grace, understands Thomas. And he knows this is born out of love. He knows where this is coming from, and he knows Thomas's heart, and he doesn't hold the doubt against him. Jesus walks up to Thomas and says, Here I am, my brother. Here I am, my son. Put your, put your fingers in the nail scars. Put your hand in my side. Do what you said you needed to do. And I don't think Thomas needed a bit of that. Because the moment that Jesus walks up to him, Thomas, and I can't imagine the man stays on his feet this whole time. Like, he's already flabbergasted. He's already knocked over. I imagine he falls. <laughs> and he's like, my Lord and my God. And he worships Jesus. He worships him. You've got to understand, this is blasphemy. For Thomas to do this, as a good Jewish kid, to worship this man that he lived and walked with for three years, this human being, is utter blasphemy. But Thomas is the first apostle of Jesus to worship him as God. Doubting Thomas is the very first one to say to Jesus, you are my God. I'll tell you what, man, far from not being like Thomas, I want to be just like him. I want to love Jesus so much that when I see him on display, when he steps to me, I can do nothing but bow and worship to him. When I look upon my risen King Jesus, all I can do is proclaim my Lord, my King, my Master, my God. I want a heart like Thomas's that loves Jesus so much I will not entertain false hope. 
when I see Jesus, I can't help but reflect in worship. I can't help but bow everything that I am to my Lord and my God. That ought to be, that ought to be our deepest longing, our deepest desire to bow at the feet of our King Jesus and declare, you are my God, my King, my Master, my Savior, my Deliverer, my God. Because that's who Jesus is. And that's what his resurrection proves to us more than anything else. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he is exactly who he said he was. And that he meant absolutely everything that he ever said. And that Jesus can be trusted beyond anything. Only Jesus responds to Thomas now. And I think it'd be easy to read these words as, as kind of corrective. Thomas, bless you. But blessed are the ones who haven't seen and have yet believed. You see, Jesus knew you'd be sitting in the seat. Jesus knew every one of us would be in this room. And he knew that we wouldn't see him as Thomas did. We wouldn't put our hand in his side. We wouldn't touch his scars. And so Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those people who are coming, who haven't seen as you have. But then the Apostle John does a funny thing. Because Jesus says this, and then John, the guy who's writing this, the guy who was just a kid at the time adds this note at the end of this chapter. And it's important that he adds it right here, right after Jesus said those words. Right after Jesus says, blessed are those who haven't seen and have yet believed, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants to be clear. He wants to make it abundantly clear. Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen and have yet believed. And the apostle John who's writing this is telling you, that's why I'm writing this down. Because you who haven't seen him physically, you can read these stories. You can read the testimony of those who have come before. You can read the account of Thomas. And by this, you can believe. Jesus is made real to you in his word. Jesus is made real to you in these gospels. Jesus is made real to you in these stories of his life. And they are there so that we will believe. Built on the testimony of those who walked with him. Built on the testimony of the apostles who followed him. Built on the testimony of everybody who ever saw him in life, who learned from him. We can trust this testimony. We can trust these words. And he says, I write this so that you may believe, but not just believe. Not just that you will believe as Thomas has, declaring to Jesus, my Lord and my God, but that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then we're fools and we should never come here again. But also, 
If we believe only in intellectually agreeing that this stuff happened, then we are fools and we should never come here again. If we don't get the life that Jesus has to give, then all of this is for nothing. If we're not given the life that our God has to give through Jesus Christ, then all of this is worthless. It's pointless ritual. It's empty. And it means nothing to us or to God. This is written, we, we come here and we fellowship with each other and we hear the testimony of what God has done and we read his word and we engage with one another and we pray so that we can grasp the life that God has to give and the life that only he can give. In Jesus is eternal life. An eternal quality of life in the here and now that that explodes in joy and meaning and purpose and direction for my life and an eternal quality of life that never ends so that death has no grasp on those who follow Jesus. Just like Jesus rose out of the tomb and rose from the grave, you and I who are in Jesus, who have the life that he has to give, will never die. This is what we believe on. This is what we stake our hope on. This is what we hold on to. <laughs> this is what makes the most difference in our lives. I was, uh, I, this, came, this came home to me this week, a couple weeks ago in a really weird way. <laughs> I'm on a bowling team. I know, that's a weird transition, right? <laughs> I'm on a bowling team. And I, when I showed up at the league, um, I didn't have a team with me, so I just got put on a team with people. I didn't know. Never met these people before. And so for now, over the course of the past eight months or so, we've been bowling together every single Sunday night. I spend more time with these people than I do most of you. Like three hours every Sunday night, we're hanging out, we're bowling together, we're getting to know each other. And a few weeks ago, one of the guys on my team got really mad at me. He was doing something that, in front of everybody that was a, a problem. He was mistreating someone else on our team, and I called him out on it. And this is a guy who's got a troubled past. He's got some difficult things in his past, and he doesn't like to be told what to do. So when I called him out on the way he was mistreating this other team member, he got really mad at me. Don't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. You know? Just yelled at me. Got really upset. Everybody can see what's going on, and I'm trying to like, just be calm. So I sit down next to him, and I'm having a conversation with this guy, and he's like, you don't understand my temper. You don't understand like, how angry I used to be right now. I, want, I don't want nothing more than to beat you up right now. I want to beat you down right now. I said, whoa, really? I'm sitting like six inches from the dude. Um, and, and so I start playing this through my mind. Now, now if, like, if you knew us, you would know like, that I was never in any real danger. He wasn't going to hurt me. And if he tried, I could get away pretty quickly. Right? Um, but I'm faster than this. But, but I start playing through my head. Like, what happens? Like, let's say this thing goes sideways. Let's say for a minute I'm sitting right here. And dude next to me really is kind of homicidal and decides just to go nuts on me and to beat me as badly as he can. Or let's say worse. Like, let's say, you know, he, he gets, he's got a knife in his hand or something. I don't know. I, I really, like, I've known him for some months, but I don't really know him. So maybe, you know, who knows? What's going to happen? And it's sitting in there at that table in the bowling alley, considering all of the things that could happen, I realize this person has zero power over me because there's nothing he can do to substantially harm me. And I don't mean I could get away if he got violent. Let's say he beat me to a pulp. 
Let's say he pulled something out of his pocket and he killed me right then and there. There is nothing he could have done to substantially harm me. My life is secure in Jesus. My life is held in the hand of my God. And that's not to diminish the harm it would cause to my family or to the people around or to you if you care for me. But for me, there's nothing he could do to take away the life that God had given me. And if that was my last night on earth, I would wake up in glory with my God and my King Jesus. There was nothing he could take from me. That's the life that we get when we believe in Jesus. That's the life, that unshakable hope, that unshakable life that means we can walk into absolutely any situation on this earth and know that there is no substantial harm that could come to us because nothing can touch the life that God has given us in Jesus Christ. It is ours, it is secure, it is firm, it is held tight by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That resurrection of Jesus is not just some historical event. It is a promise to you and to me for all of eternity that our life is secure with Christ and it can never, ever be taken away. That's the life that is on offer this Easter Sunday. That's the life that you can know. The security of being able to walk through this world immune to the dangers of the world because your life is untouchable. That's what Jesus has to give. And he offers it not as a bribe to you, not because he needs you on his team. Jesus is not like begging for you to come and join because you've got some amazing gifts. Jesus loves you as you are. Jesus loves you where you're sitting right now. And he offers you this life solely because you are lovely to him. Solely because he wants you, not because he needs you, not because he needs me. This life is a free offer from our God and King who endured the death that we deserve to kill the sin that we could not in order to give us life eternal that cannot be robbed, cannot be stolen away. You can know that life today. You can know the life that Jesus has to give right this moment. You can know the freedom from sin and the eternal security of having your life held in his hand. You can know as Thomas did that Jesus truly is Lord and God. All you have to do is come to him and surrender your life to him now. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to join me. You don't have to speak the exact words, but I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer to dedicate yourself to King Jesus to take up the life that he has to offer. And then after that, we're going to partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ today. We're going to partake of communion together. And so grab your cup and your bread and join me in prayer. Jesus, our God and King, today we long for your life that is on free offer. Today we long to believe in you as Thomas did and declare with our mouths that you are our Lord and God. 
Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we've turned away from you, the ways that we've turned our backs on you, the sin that crowds our hearts and taints our actions. Forgive us, God, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Lord, today, give us the life that only you can give. Give us the security and the peace that only you can give. Transform our hearts from cold, dead things into warm hearts burning with love and desire for you. God, let us be the Jesus that other people are looking for. Let us be the Jesus that the Thomases in the world desperately need to see. God, as we go out and we testify to the goodness of our King Jesus, to the glory of what you've done, to the life that you can give, I pray, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would be working in the lives of the people around us, in our family, in our friends, in our community, in our neighborhoods, bringing the life that only you can give. And so today, Lord, we lay down our sin. We say we are sorry. We turn our back on sin and self-determination and we say, Jesus, you are our Lord and God. We long for the life that you have to give. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 